Let's open our Bibles once again to Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. We began Luke's Gospel last week, and we dealt with the prologue, the first four verses. A conversation I had with Mr. Bellini, we were talking about a couple of very well-known ministers who have done series on Luke who have skipped the prologue. And uh, I thought it was absolutely essential that we go through the prologue last week. The prologue is there by divine inspiration to help us to understand the purpose of the book. And so if you were not here because of your fall break last week, I encourage you to go back and catch that sermon so that you are up to speed. Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. Will you pray with me? Our gracious God, how thankful we are for the joy of your word, being able to read it, to enjoy it, to see Christ on every page, to know that you are a redeemer of sinners like us. And now as we turn to this word and we begin to see this segment of the progress of redemptive history, may we see Jesus and may we understand as believers our part in this. And may those who are strangers to grace who are here, who don't know you at all, may they be drawn out of darkness into light. And prepare us, Father, as believers, that we may live faithfully for Christ and prepare our hearts even more this morning to come to the table of the Lord. In the name of Christ, we ask and pray these things. Amen. Will you stand with me? Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. This is the word of God. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And these days, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. How long have you sometimes prayed for something and perhaps even forgotten that you have prayed for that thing? Ancient Israel from Genesis 3.15 until formed as a people with Abraham and ultimately through Moses, all the way through the prophets, God's people had been praying that the Lord will fulfill his promise of the coming Messiah. Not always understanding fully what that meant, certainly, but nonetheless praying for it, longing for it. And then the last prophet to speak before the word that we have read this morning was the prophet Malachi. 400 years, 400 long years ago, 400 years of silence, there had been no prophet to bring a word of comfort and of hope and of promise. But the faithful remnant continued to believe and continued to pray. God said that he would fulfill his covenant word. And as we now come to this, we see the Old Testament era ending and the New Covenant era beginning with the birth of John the Baptist, or at least in this text, the promise of the birth of John the Baptist. We begin by looking at, first of all, the covenant of grace manifested in dark times. In verse 5 we read, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Herod, this is Herod I, Herod the Great, born 74 B.C., ruled over the Jews from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., nominated by the Roman Senate to be king over Judea. An army was given to him. We read of Herod the Great only twice in the New Testament, in this chapter and in Matthew chapter 2. This is the Herod who slew the little boys after the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God is at work in times and places when and where tyrants rule. God is working his sovereign purpose out despite the puny arrogance of the Herods of this world. God put Herod on the throne. He sets up one, he pulls down another. We do not live in a chance universe, but God is sovereign over the affairs of men and of nations. And in the darkness of those days, and even now, God is sovereignly working his purpose out. In such days, Zechariah and his wife lived, a couple who knew the Lord. Hendrickson says it so beautifully, terrible tyrant, pious pious priest. What a contrast. Zechariah means Jehovah has remembered, and he has indeed. He was of the priestly division of Abijah, this man, Zechariah. 
There were 24 divisions of the priests that were established during the reign of David. For a couple of weeks a year, Zechariah would be part of this group, the group of Abijah, when he would come and he would participate in the sacrificial system. So basically he would come and he would slay animals. That's what he would do. He would be covered with blood. His wife Elizabeth was descended from Aaron. It was common for priests to marry into a priestly line. Elizabeth means God is an oath. He's an oath-making, an oath-keeping God. God is an oath. This couple was completely compatible in their love for the Lord. The parents of this great John the Baptist walked faithfully before the Lord. Covenant theology is at work here. God is a God to us and to our children after us, and he continues to work through the elect children in Christian families, believing families. These old saints believed the promise of God's covenant and lived in light of that covenant. Do you? For that promise is still the promise of his covenant to you. Both were righteous. The term can have meanings in the New Testament and in the Old that vary, but here it simply means that they have a heart for God, that they love God, they followed his commandments, they attempted to be obedient to him. They were believers who attempted to be faithful. Zechariah and Elizabeth, however, were troubled about something. They were deeply troubled because they were childless. And barrenness was considered the worst condition for a Jewess. Some women were even shunned socially because they had no children. It was assumed wrongly in the Jewish society that if you did not have children, it was because of some great sin that you had committed. But they had not lost hope in the Lord. The barrenness was not a result of sin, but of God's good redemptive plan. How often is it true that what may seem to us a judgment is really a divine blessing, through which God incredibly, through something very, very painful, intends to help us to know and to understand the tender mercies of the Lord, or perhaps through us to help someone else understand the tender mercies of the Lord. So they're very old, they're very advanced in years. They had lost no hope in the Lord, but undoubtedly they had lost hope in having children at their age. They must have thought that their prayer was a prayer that God had simply chosen to answer with the answer, no. S.G. de Graaf, the Dutch theologian, points out that Zechariah and Elizabeth were really a picture of ancient Israel. Ancient Israel, waiting, 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 waiting for the promised Messiah to come. Their hope frustrated. Will the Messiah really come? And this couple in life, waiting, 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 waiting for a child, and their hope frustrated. You know, the prayers that we have long forgot praying, the Lord has not forgotten. And by now, this old couple did not expect an answer at all, or rather that the answer was no. But our God is a prayer-answering God. The answer to their prayers would be far, far, far beyond any of their expectations because our God is able to do exceeding abundantly more than all we ask or think. And what they could not have known, what they could not have even dreamt, is that God was working out his redemptive purpose through this delay, uh, through what appeared to them to be a no answer to their prayers. 
paralleling Abraham and Sarah and Hannah, we also need to learn, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face, and they could never have known what a smile from God would appear to them in the near future. Now the narrative narrows and we move to the temple and we see the setting of the promise in which the Lord begins to answer these prayers and to work. So the second thing is Zechariah's temple service. It's found in verses 8 through 10. Very few had the privilege of offering incense as does Zechariah. I've mentioned to you that he was part of the group of Abijah. He would work a couple of times a year, a couple of weeks a year. But almost no priests, very, very few, would be chosen to offer incense in the, ten, in the temple. But he was chosen. He was chosen by lot. And who controls the lot, I ask you? You know, don't you? Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. So there is Zechariah. He must have been absolutely thrilled. This is a very rare privilege to offer incense in the temple. So will you go back with me in time and come with me and watch? You see him there. He's an old man, an old priest. Zechariah coming close to the veil that is separating the holy place from the holy of holies, the most holy place, into which only once a year the high priest would enter. So he's there, the altar of incense is right there before going beyond the veil into the most holy place. That's where Zechariah is. Twice per day, morning and mid-afternoon, incense was offered. Evidently there's a great crowd that is gathered in order that they might see the results of his ministry. Zechariah comes to the golden altar with two assistants. One assistant brings the golden bowl with burning coals from the altar of burnt offerings, and the coals are spread on the altar of incense. And then another assistant comes, and he actually brings the incense that are to be spread upon the altar. And then he withdraws, and while the other assistant carries the golden censer of incense and arranges the incense on the altar, Zechariah places the incense upon the coals, and immediately there's this great cloud of incense that fills the temple. That great cloud of incense representing what? Representing the prayers of the people of God and the faithful who long for the salvation of Israel, who long that God would answer the prayer that the Messiah would come, who long that God would be glorified in the earth. All of these prayers, all of the prayers of the people of God go up and descend into the nostrils of God as a sweet-smelling savor. That's what it represents. And what about God's people? They're gathered outside praying. Outside, the crowds are waiting for Zechariah to return from the altar of incense where he will go to the steps before the sanctuary and to the joy of all of the people of God, he would raise his hands and he would pronounce the Aaronic benediction. You can read it here at the end of your bulletin, actually. 
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He was prepared to go and to raise his hands and to pronounce this wonderful benediction on the people of God. He could not have known the depth of this benediction, could he? He could not have known for the Lord to bless his people and to keep them. He must curse his son. For the Lord to make his face to shine upon his people, he must frown upon his only begotten son. For God to be gracious to us, he must be ungracious indeed. He must demonstrate wrath upon his son. For him to lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, the Son of God must have no peace for those hours upon the cross and would bear the hell of his people. Zechariah could not have known the depth of the benediction that he would be called upon to pronounce. But Zechariah doesn't come. Where is he? He's not there. Undoubtedly, the people begin to, to shuffle their feet. And perhaps they look at one another in, in, in wonderment. They scratch their heads. Maybe they whisper to one another, where's Zechariah? He should have been here long before now. Where is he? Where is our priest? Where is he? The narrative then narrows more. And here is why Zechariah is tardy. Because, thirdly, of the angel's announcement. Standing right in front of him to the right of the altar of incense, there's the angel Gabriel. And Zechariah is overwhelmed with fear. Wouldn't you be? Verses 11 and 12 Tell us, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. That word troubled means he was really troubled, and fear fell upon him. And Gabriel speaks. He has a message from the throne, and his message to Zechariah is this. First, he says, do not be afraid. He's terrified. There's an angel before him. The Lord is manifesting himself through his representative, but God through his angel says, do not be afraid. And then he says, your petition has been heard. What petition? Is it the petition that he has been praying along with the incense with all of God's people for God's glory and for the redemption of Israel? Is that for what he was praying? Or is it the prayer, perhaps, even in his old age that might have come to his mind, Lord, even though we're old, will you, will you still send us a son? I suppose we can't know for sure. But after all, the prayers were one and the same, weren't they? The prayer for the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan by the sending of their son. These prayers, these prayers would be the same. God delayed but God's delays are not denials. Do you see how your personal lives are wrapped up in God's overall redemptive purpose and that your prayers and your place in redemptive history is also the place where God has you and the prayers you pray also have a part to play in the fulfillment of his redemptive plan. Do you understand that? And then the angel says, your wife Elizabeth will no longer be barren. Now, how many exclamation points should be put behind that? Your wife, 
I'm sorry, ladies, but your old wife, your very old, your ancient wife, (laughs) is going to have a son. I'll even tell you his name. His name will be John, and there will be joy at his birth. Imagine Zechariah's amazement. Perhaps Zechariah and Elizabeth, they, they shuffle along. Maybe they're humped over. Perhaps they're both, they're both arthritic. They're old. But John is coming, which means the Lord is gracious. The grace would not be for Zechariah and Elizabeth alone. The joy would not be for Zechariah and Elizabeth alone. The joy would be for all of the people of God throughout all of the ages. God had you in mind when that angel came and made this promise to Zechariah in the temple. It's for the joy of the whole world. But then the text moves on. And the fourth thing we see is that Gabriel elaborates on the character and significance of John, who would be born to Elizabeth. Now this is in verses 15 and following, and some of these things we'll take up later as we move on in Luke. But for now, simply note these things that the angel says. First, he says about John that he will be a herald of Christ. He will be the forerunner, the herald of Christ. And he was, wasn't he? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He pointed to Jesus. He pointed to Christ. He pointed to the cross. He pointed to the atonement. And that is why he is called great in this passage. Because men that live to serve God are great. The world has it all turned and twisted around. He will stress true conversion. He will be separated out by God to live a spirit-filled life, one of lifelong consecration. He will live a disciplined life. And note the emphasis on the Holy Spirit in verse 15 that tells us that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And soon we will move along And we will see the role of the Holy Spirit in the birth of the Savior. And as you move on in Luke's gospel, a constant emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. And having gone through John's qualities, the angel says, Gabriel focuses, Gabriel focuses upon what John's ministry will bring. He will go before, he will turn, and he will prepare. Many of the sons of Israel will be turned to the Lord their God. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children coming in the spirit and power of Elijah of old. Notice this in verse 17. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now some of you know there are two approaches to that verse. There's the possibility that it means that the patriarchs will no longer be embarrassed as they look upon Israel because their hearts are going to be turned toward the patriarchs and the prophets of old. That is to say, actually, the patriarchs' hearts are turned toward them as they live in obedience. Now, I understand that. I don't think that's right. I think it's an astounding thing that we are told here. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This is an astounding thing 
they would again trust the Lord. Alienation in families that is the result always of sin that permeates a culture, that alienation would be healed. The birth of this child would lead to the healing of breaches between fathers and children. The point is that true conversion results in harmony in the home of those whose hearts are truly turned. As Plummer says in his old commentary, in the moral degradation of the people, even parental affection had languished. Genuine reform strengthens family ties. Whatever weakens them is no true reform. So when Christ is pointed to, when the gospel is preached, there is real affection in the home. Fathers will love their children. Their hearts will be turned toward them. There's a restoration in the home because of the gospel of real affection between family members. Is that true for you, by the way? Do you know that to be the case? Do you find that controlling your home and your attitude toward your family, toward your children, and children toward your family, toward your fathers or mothers? And then Gabriel says he will make ready for the Lord a people, a prepared people, a remnant that is prepared by grace. Through John's message, their consciences were awakened and God brought true conversion. He pointed them away from all that they had trusted that could never have saved them to the one who could and called upon them to be right with God. John the Baptist came proclaiming Christ and calling the nation back to God. But now the heralded king has come, hasn't he? The one heralded by John has come. He's come into this world, born of a virgin, died on a cross, rose from the dead. You know more of who he is than John the Baptist who heralded him know, to whom much is given, much is required. Have you believed on the Christ to whom John pointed? Have you been converted? Has your heart turned to him? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ to whom John the Baptist would point? But then we see something that seems almost strange. Fifthly, it's Zechariah's response. Now what would you expect Zechariah to say? I have been ministering in the temple. All of the themes of redemptive history are filling my mind and heart. The prayers of the people of God are heard. And the angel has come from heaven from the very throne of God and he's spoken to me. I'm going to believe his word. Wouldn't you expect that from a godly man? Well, maybe it's a bit encouraging to us who have only a small beginning, all of us in our sanctification, to realize that's not how he responded, though he should and we should. He responded in unbelief. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. He responds to the angel by saying, Old people like us just don't have children. Zechariah has his eye on the child. This is the smaller part of the promise. He's missing the grand sweep of redemptive history, the plan of God. Zechariah, don't you see? This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. Don't you see, this is the fulfillment of the promise of Malachi 3. 
the coming herald of the Messiah. Don't you see? The Lord was speaking after 400 years, for the first time in 400 years. Actually, it had been 500 years before an angel had come. It had been during the time of Daniel when the last miracle had been performed. The last time there had been a cluster of miracles was 800 years before in the time of Elijah and Elisha. And here's this angel. And Zechariah looked at the difficulty rather than in faith believing the promise of God. And the wonderful thing is this. His failure to believe the promise of God did not invalidate God's promise. Because God's promise is yea and amen in Christ and is unconditional and he keeps his word. So how does Gabriel respond? Zechariah says, I really can't believe this. Old people don't have children. Gabriel, I can imagine Gabriel looking him in the eye and he says, I am Gabriel. Don't you get it? I am Gabriel. The one of whom you read in Daniel chapter 8. The one of whom you read in Daniel chapter 9. I'm the messenger of God from the throne. I've come here with God's promise for you. I've come here with good news for you. I have come from the throne with gospel. I have come to promise fulfillment of all of the longings of the people of God throughout all of the ages. I am Gabriel. God's word of promise. You've asked for a sign. I'm going to give you a sign. You spoke unbelief, at least partially. Therefore, your tongue will be silent until the fulfillment of the word of promise. Now, that would be really hard for some of us. You'll learn how to trust the Lord more fully. And is this not also for us one of the main things our trials are designed to teach us? How to trust the Lord more fully? When God has spoken, since God has spoken, there can be no honest doubt. There's no such thing as honest doubt. S.G. DeGraff says, In that terrible dumbness, Zechariah discovered how horrible his sin was. But putting to death the unbelief that was in him, God awakened faith in him instead. Then the fact that he was dumb, which continued to plague him, really became a daily confirmation of his faith. What the angel talked about is certainly going to happen, for I am dumb. I do not have the right to speak, for I did not believe the Lord. All our speaking should be a speaking in faith. Now Zechariah returns to the worshipers. Remember what he's supposed to do? He's supposed to come out, get on the steps, raise his hands, and say, The Lord bless you and keep you, and pronounce the benediction of Aaron upon the people of God. But they perceive, according to verse 22, that he's had a vision. 
When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And they were amazed. Is God doing something? 400 years, no prophet. 500 years before the last angel. Is God drawing nigh? They expected the Aaronic benediction. He's unable to speak. He must use sign language. And what then happens? I will tell you what happened. Zechariah finished up his work. He went home. He loved his old wife. And she became pregnant. Huh? You remember all the way back in Genesis 21. When God made a promise to Abraham that his wife Sarah would have a child. Not the one that you contrive to have in some other way. The child I'm promising to you. Chapter 21 of Genesis verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Hebrews chapter 11. Again, thinking of old Abraham and old Sarah and their inability to have children. Hebrews 11, 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to, receive, to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, okay, he's so old, he's as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now we have it again. A natural pregnancy and birth, but supernaturally caused... There hasn't been a miracle since the days of Daniel. And this is a miracle. Why? Because the Messiah is about to come. Because Jesus is about to be born. Because the miracle of miracles is about to take place. Because our salvation would come in this miraculous child. And so it begins with a miracle. The conception in the womb of this old woman, Elizabeth, by her husband, and the birth, as we will see, of John the Baptist. Elizabeth conceived because God promised that she would conceive. And his promises never fail. Now, believers... You are involved in the flow of redemptive history. I don't have to involve you. You already are involved in the flow. You're involved in the Lord's redemptive plan. Klaus Gilder, Dutch theologian for whom I have great respect, said, as he defined redemptive history, he defined it in this way. Redemptive history, the successive... Realization in time of God's thoughts of peace for us according to his fixed plan and the fulfillment in time 
of this work program which Father, Son, and Spirit decided before time. And then he goes on to say, in every subsequent epoch, as you go through the Bible and you move closer to the coming of the Messiah, in every subsequent epoch, there is a decisive entrance of something new, an inevitable increase in atmospheric pressure, a rise in temperature, a drawing near of Bethlehem. That's exactly what's happened. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God and three persons, purposed your redemption. In Genesis 3.15, he gives the first promise. There is a succession of covenantal, epical events. In every one of those events throughout redemptive history, there is a rise in atmospheric pressure, moving God's people, pushing them along to this great, great, great thing, the incarnation of the Son of God, His birth at Bethlehem. So Scripture has shown that God has been moving His people near near, near, near to this moment. Do you see what's happening in the text? That's what's happening in the text. And as we look at this, there are at least four powerful truths that I want you to take with you and live out, people of God. The first is this. With what delight Do I, as God's minister, say to you on the authority of His Word, God keeps His promises. God keeps His Word. He's fulfilling what He planned in eternity and what was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. The promise we've received by faith is not something for which we strive. The promise is God's doing. The gospel comes to us by free grace. There's no human effort involved in fulfilling the promise of Christ's coming. It is by grace alone. We can trust him when we first come to him for salvation. We can trust him to bring his entire redemptive program to fulfillment. To put it plainly, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you will go to heaven and you will get there because God says so. God keeps His promise. Second powerful truth, we believers also are in a position of waiting, aren't we? Think of it. For all those centuries, God's people waiting for the coming of the Messiah, longing, praying, waiting, waiting, Now we live in a time of fulfillment. Jesus has come. He died on a cross, rose from the dead bodily, ascended on high. But now we're waiting again as God's people. And he will come again. And so we conclude every service with come quickly, Lord Jesus. The church in the Old Testament waited for Christ's first coming. We await his son from heaven. So keep looking up. Keep your gaze there. Every generation of believers should live as if we would be the generation in which Christ will come again. Because one day, there will be a generation in which it will happen. Because God says so. So we also are in a position of waiting. Third truth. 
Just as was the case for Old Testament believers, so for us after the birth of Christ, His cross, His resurrection, His ascension, the Lord wants us in our daily living to hang upon His promises. He wants us to walk by faith, even though we cannot and do not walk by sight. He wants you, His people, to know the promise of His, of his word ultimately the promise Christ himself, but all of the rich promises that lead to him. He wants you and he wants me to live in faith on the basis of his promises. As a Puritan said, God's promises are the cork to keep faith from sinking in prayer. So you fishermen out there can never say, I never brought anything for you. God's promises are the cork to keep faith from sinking in prayer. That's how he wants you to live. And then finally, do you pray? Do you sometimes agonize before God in prayer? Do you sometimes pray and you don't see the answer? Do you sometimes say, Lord, where's the answer? Or maybe even you prayed something so long ago you don't even remember you prayed it. God hasn't forgotten. God will answer your prayer too. As with Abraham and Sarah, to whom Isaac was born. As with Hannah, to whom Samuel was born. As to Manoah and his wife, to whom Samson was born. As with Mary, through whom our Lord was incarnate. The Lord who keeps his promise will answer our prayers as we look for mercy, as we pray for justice, as we long for the manifestation of the one who will make all things new, as we look to the coming of Christ in glory. God will answer all of the prayers of his people in ways that far exceed your wildest expectations He will wipe every tear from your eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. All things will be made new. The Lamb will be the light of the city, the new Jerusalem. And you will see His face. Every longing Every prayer that you now pray will be answered by your promise-keeping God in ways, in ways that you and I cannot even conceive. All of this because God is God. All of this because God says I will do it. Your God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.